welcome. So, hey, listen, this weekend and next weekend, we're actually going to wrap up our series that we've been doing since August in the book um, of Galatians. And uh, you're going to notice, if you were here last weekend, that we're, we, she reread some of the verses that we looked at last weekend. And the reason for that is because what we're going to study today, the last two verses that Melissa read, uh, are actually connected to the two verses that went before. So I'm actually going to do a little review of last week before we uh, kind of dig in, you know, to the, um, yeah, just to what we, what we want to say today. So last week, uh, we said this based on Galatians 6, 7, and 8. We said, hey, you reap what you sow. And we said to you that this principle runs in the background of your life every single day. We said last week that the principle of reaping and sowing doesn't know your name. It's not personal, right? It just is. It is not just a spiritual law, but it is a law as inevitable in your life and mine as the law of gravity. And it just simply reflects the way the world works. It's not uh, religious jargon. This isn't even a religious understanding of the world. Uh, and we said last week that God's given us this principle to leverage, right? Like gravity. This principle isn't good or bad, it just is, and it's just true. Uh, and then we said last week that two things flow out of this principle, that you reap both later and greater. So in other words, uh, the consequences of sowing aren't always immediate, right? They come later. There's a lag, we said, between sowing and reaper, so, reaping. So like a farmer who would sow seed in the spring and harvest in the fall, there's a period of time where it seems like nothing happens, right? And this is one of the reasons we forget this law, because there aren't immediate consequences. So because there's sometimes a lag, we forget how prominent, how profound this law really does play in the background. Uh, and we said, too, that later, right, is why we envy irresponsible people who don't seem to suffer any immediate consequences for their irresponsibility because the consequences aren't always immediate. I mean, if it was like Pinocchio and every time we lied, our nose grew, right, we'd figure out a way not to be deceitful and how to tell the truth. But because the consequences aren't immediate, Weak, this principle can kind of fade into the background. And then greater, we said, means that the consequences are going to be bigger than you imagine. In other words, it's going to be worse than you thought it was going to be. But greater also means that the blessings, the favor um, you're given will also be greater. So we've said that you can leverage this principle in your life for good or bad, right? Right? It's all in how we leverage it. Um, so here's the way the law of sowing and reaping works. If you spend more than you make consistently, you will accrue lots and lots of debt. 
right? That's the law of sowing and reaping. Or if you refuse to give out of selfishness and fear, you will never be anything but selfish and fearful with your finances. If you gossip about others, it will always result in factions, in disagreements, in dissension, in division, in judgment, and in envy. Gossiping doesn't bear any other kind of fruit. Further, we said that this principle explains everything there is to know about your life. This principle explains why your marriage is in the shape that it's in, whether that's good or whether that's bad. It explains your finances and all of the fear and the worry that you carry around associated with that, right? Whatever you reap, you sow. We said this is just another way of saying that all of our life is connected the decisions, the habits, the principles that you engaged in yesterday brought you to where you are today. And in the same way, the habits, the words, the decisions, the principles that you live by today will determine your tomorrow. So all of your life is connected. And then Paul reminded us, we're still on last week, right? That within you and I are two distinct natures. And we can sow to those two distinct natures. We can either sow to the flesh, and we said last week that your flesh, all of us have these two natures. Your flesh is that part of you that wants to live independently of God and that wants immediate gratification. And then we said, or you can sow to your spiritual nature. And that your spiritual nature is that part of you that longs to live close to God, to draw from the resources of God, uh, to know His help, His great love, right? So you can sow one direction or another. And he says, hey, if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption, the word corruption here is so important. It means decay or decomposition. Uh, this might be the word we would use to describe rust on a bicycle or a car. It might be the word that we would use to describe somebody who's healthy, but they get cancer, and cancer begins to ravage their body. That's what this word corruption means. So he says, if you just sow consistently and only to your flesh, that just brings decay. It brings decomposition to your life. But he said, when you sow to the Spirit, right, that brings eternal life. Life. And we said last week, right, that this word is so misunderstood because when you translate this word just eternal life, that's a very narrow, it's a very restrictive understanding of this word. It's a much broader word that refers uh, to the overcoming, undefeatable, uncompromising indestructible life that you receive from God when you were born again. It refers to the better, higher, wider, deeper way of living that Jesus came to bring, not just in heaven, but today. And so we said last week, right, you don't just need Christ because you, you may die tomorrow. You need Christ because you've got, or because you may die today. You need Christ because you've got to live tomorrow. And we've all got to get up in bed and live our lives and every single one of us in the room needs every bit of help that we can get right so last week to wrap up I asked every one of you to be more intentional about sowing to your spirit in the year 2020 because to which 
nature, you sow the most seed, that nature is going to rise up and be the dominant nature in your life. And so if you say to me, Pastor, I don't, then I ask you to evaluate and look back at the last week of your life, right? And ask yourself, to where did you sow the most seed in the last week of your life? To your flesh? or to your spirit. And if you say to me, Pastor, I don't think I sowed any seed last week, then what that means is you sowed everything to your flesh. It just means that you sowed exclusively and only to your flesh in the last week. Now, right on the now all of that sets up what we have to learn today. Right on the heels of that, Paul is going to say something that is so powerful, but as powerful as it is, it's also very misunderstood. And here's what he said. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So two things. First thing he says is, hey, so let's not grow weary in doing good. Why would we grow weary in doing good? Well, we've already said because there's a lag sometimes between the seed that we sow. So in this case, seeds of goodness in the hearts, minds, and lives of others, right? So because of that lag, sometimes we can be doing good, but we're not seeing the results immediately, right? We're not seeing God working because there's a lag between sowing and reaping. So he says, stay with it because one day you will reap a harvest of righteousness. You will be, you'll experience overwhelming blessing, overwhelming favor, if you don't give up, if you don't grow weary of doing good. And I want to kind of walk you through the second reason why Paul would say don't grow weary in doing good. Because the reality of sowing good seed, folks, hear me, is it's difficult. It's taxing. Because what Paul's saying to every one of us in the room is, I want you to be willing to offer some of your time, some of your talent, and some of your treasures to benefit other people. And that's not always going to feel convenient to you and I. It's not always going to be easy. Sometimes that's going to be difficult. We'd rather not. Right? We'd rather just take our time, our talents, and our treasures and use it to benefit us, benefit our own families, what we think is important. And God is saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to leverage every opportunity to do good for all people, that's always going to involve some of your own time, talents, and treasures. Now, I want to stop here because this is so important. Listen to me. I want you to think about your friends for a minute. I want you to think about what they believe the message of Christianity is. I happen to know, not because I know your friends, but because I happen to know what most people believe the message of Christianity is. And here's what it is. Be good. Be good. If Christianity sets the bar this high, you live up to that. Be good. 
And so when, when, when your friends hear a message like, hey, let's do good to all people, I know what they're thinking. They're just thinking, hey, this is a variation on the be good message of Christianity, and they couldn't be. And if you're thinking that, you couldn't be more wrong. That is not uh, what this commandment is. Um, Paul has argued throughout the book of Galatians that our goodness, yours and mine, as Christ followers, finds its source, our goodness finds its source in Christ Jesus. In other words, His goodness is applied to me and to you. That's where our goodness comes from, not from ourselves. So the message of the book of Galatians is that because Christ has said that we are good, because He's already declared us good, because He already sees us as good, we are therefore to do good to other people. But there is a vast difference between being being good and doing good. And I want to highlight the difference. It's so important that we get this. Doing good is an entirely different endeavor than being good. Listen to me. Being good is an effort of self, focused on self, fighting with self, for self. It is about nothing more than avoiding certain sins, whatever sins we may think that they are, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't drink, don't womanize. Whatever the list looks like, being good is often nothing more than sin avoidance. Just kind of staying away from sin and being, right, a good person. But doing good, oh, and by the way, the fruit of trying to be good is nothing more than shame, guilt, and isolation from God. Because the harder that you try to be good, the more alienation arises between you and God. And this has been Paul's message all through the book of Galatians. So this is not a command to be good. This is a whole nother league. An an emphasis on being good, again, brings that shame, that guilt, right? But uh, doing good is all about caring for other people. It's not about sin avoidance. It's not passive. It's not withdrawing. It's getting elbow deep in the needs of other people, right? Uh, and and it's, it isn't just based on sin avoidance. It's based and built on the law of love, the law of love. And so an emphasis on doing good as opposed to being good brings joy because you're being used by your heavenly Father. It brings life. It brings vitality. It brings a regular hearing of His voice. It brings all the things that we hope for as followers of Jesus. All of that comes through that focus, not on self, fighting with self, the struggle within yourself, but doing good where other people are concerned, right? So, uh, so important to understand this. But Paul doesn't just stop there. I mean, it's incredible. He says that not only should we do good to all people, right? He goes on to say this in verse 10, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, in other words, 
wherever you are, whenever you are, and you have an opportunity to do good to someone else, let us do good to all people, but especially those who belong to the household of faith. Now, this is so interesting to me because why would Paul say that? Why would Paul give preferential treatment to people inside the church. This seems counterintuitive to me because after all, if we love the world right better, then they're going to see our love and they're going to want to be among us. So why would Paul give preference to those outside, you know, those inside the household of faith? And here's why. Because this was never his idea to begin with. This was, he isn't writing something new He's writing something that he's heard from the other disciples that goes way back to someone else. He's, he's, he's writing this uh, and way back in John 13 when Jesus came and he's introducing a new covenant. Uh, you know, when he's telling people, look, you don't have to live by the old covenant anymore, the old commandments. I'm giving you a new commandment. Let's kind of look at what Jesus said. He said, a new commandment I give you. This is John 13, 34, and 35. And do we have it up behind me? Yes, there it is. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So, first of all, this isn't a command to love other people the way that I would want to be loved. This is a commandment to love other people in the way that Jesus loved me, in the way that Jesus laid down his life for me. Not love somebody else the way that I would want to be loved, but to love other people the way that Jesus has loved and served and given up his life for me kind of love, right? And then he goes on to say this, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, so the reason that Paul gives preference to the family of believers is because this is about validating the good news of Jesus. Because Jesus said, hey, look, if you love one another the way that I've loved you, all people are going to see that you're my disciples. And so I want you to imagine, if you would, for just a minute, a world where people were skeptical about what we believed, but they were envious of how well we treated one another. And then I want you to imagine that they were equally surprised at how well we love them. That is the kind of world that our Jesus is calling us to create, right? So Jesus laid this groundwork for this all throughout his ministry. This was something that Jesus lived out and talked about again and again and again. In fact, one of Jesus' most famous parables occurs in the context of giving our lives away for other people. And so one day Jesus would tell this parable. It's going to become, you've probably heard the story, becomes one of his most famous par parables. But he tells the story because of a question that he's asked. And it's a question that's meant to set him up. It's a question that's meant 
to, uh, to demonstrate him as a fake and a fraud, to demonstrate that he's not who he said he was, that he's not the coming Messiah, that he's not the Son of God, but that he's something less than that. And it's a question that's actually asked by an attorney, by a lawyer, someone trained to discredit right, someone's testimony, at least if they're on the prosecuting side of the argument, right? And make no mistake about it, that's exactly the side this lawyer is playing when it comes to Jesus. And so he asks a question, and uh, it, it goes like this. Uh, so this is Luke chapter 10. So, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as Jesus often does, he, did, uh, he, he turns around and he answers this man's question with a question. So, and he often does this when people ask him a question. He says, well, you, you tell me you're the lawyer, you're the educated man. Uh, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And so here was the man's response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's pause because this is so important. The very first time these two commands were ever stated together, Jesus did it. And so here's what this means. It means that this man has already been listening to Jesus. So he'd already heard Jesus teach this formula. So all he's doing is parroting back to Jesus the words that the historic words that Jesus has already spoken, that Jesus has already talked about at an earlier point in his ministry. Because what he's thinking is, I can't go wrong in parroting Jesus' own words back to him. And this is exactly why Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Right? Do this and you will live. But then, this man is going to ask Jesus a question that he will regret for the rest of his life. And he does it to justify himself. Because he thinks he knows what the answer is. He thinks he knows what, that everybody else in the crowd knows what the answer is. And he couldn't be more wrong. And so here's the way he asks the question. And it, here's the way the text says it. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now listen, he already thought he knew the answer to that. He already thought, and everybody else in the, in the room thought, they already knew the answer to that. Because this command to love your neighbor as yourself finds its source in a book called Leviticus in the Old Testament. And here it is. Let's look at it together. So God's saying, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, right? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when you look at the command to love your neighbor itself, 
as, as yourself in its original context, who is it telling them to love? Other Jews, right? Other people like you, people of your bloodline, people who are descendants of Abraham. Those are the people that you're called to love. People of your own ethnicity and nobody else. And so when this teacher of the law asks the question, he assumes that Jesus is going to tell him this answer. And Jesus is going to blow the roof off the idea that a neighbor, someone we're obligated to love, is just someone of our own ethnicity or skin color or background. He's going to blow the roof off this. And he's going to blow the roof off this by telling a spiritual story, a parable. A parable is just a story with a spiritual moral. That's all it is. And so Jesus is going to tell a parable. And by the way, this parable is going to seemingly have nothing to do with his question. Who is my neighbor? But Jesus will eventually get there, right? So here's how uh, he tells the story. Uh, he uh, tells it this way. I'm, I just lost my place. I'm going to come right back to it. There it is, right? So, uh, yeah, so Jesus begins to tell the story. Here's what he says. Um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, right? And uh, who stripped him and beaded, departed, and leaving him half dead, right? Leaving him half dead. So uh, here's the story as Jesus told it. What he's saying is, uh, this is a Jew, and you know the story. You've heard it before, right? Two Jewish teachers come upon this man who's been beaten and laying on the side of the road, and they're teachers who know about the command to love God and the second command to love others. But do you know what these two Jewish teachers do? They pass this guy by. Therefore, they're not loving God because they're not loving their neighbor. So these two Jewish teachers are kind of the bad guys in this story. And then Jesus goes on and um, he says it differently, right? He says, uh, but a Samaritan, now let's stop there. A Samaritan was somebody that Jews despised and detested. They believed different things, they looked differently, they acted differently, and Jews and Samaritans detested one another. And so Jesus is telling a story in a way that someone who's a little more ethnically diverse than these Jews is going to be the hero of this story right? So it says, but a Samaritan as he traveled came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. To which the people in the room are thinking, surely not. Surely he's not going to make a Samaritan the hero of this story. I mean, it was probably a Samaritan that robbed and beat this guy up in the first place. So why in the world would God make a Samaritan the hero, right? 
But then, but he did. And not only did he make the Samaritan the hero, he made him an go the extra mile, are you kidding me kind of hero in this story. Listen to what he goes on to say. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn and take care of him. I mean, this was ridiculous to think that a Samaritan would rescue a Jew who was in trouble and take him to an inn, take responsibility for him. I mean, this was over the top. No Samaritan they'd ever met would ever take that kind of care to care for another Jew. This just wasn't how things were done in these parts. But Jesus wasn't finished. He said, the next day, wait a minute. Did he really expect them to believe that a Samaritan would devote a whole day of his time to helping this guy? Yeah, a whole day and spend the entire extra night caring for a Jew. The next day, he took out two denarii. In other words, he's not just giving of his time or of his talents. Now he's, he's offering up his treasure for the benefit of other people. I mean, this is incredible, right? And he said, look after this guy. So I want to be clear, he's not just paying for this guy's lodging. He's not only getting him a room for the night, he's also paying for his medical care. He's saying, look, bandage this guy up. Make sure that he recuperates. So he's giving of his talents, of his treasures, lavishly, extravagantly. He's not just throwing, uh, you know, like we might sometimes do, like when we're in a car and we see a panhandler and so we hand him a buck. That's not what's happening here. This is an over-the-top, lavish kind of giving and love, right? So um, this was so important. Here's, here's what I'm telling you. Jesus redefined through telling a story what it means for people to view their neighbor, what the word means. See, I know what you think of when you think of the word neighbor. You think of a person that lives next door or lives in your neighborhood. Maybe you think of Mr. Rogers, right? Because he said, hey, you know, won't you be my neighbor? But when a Jew heard the way neighbor, what they thought of was other Jews. And so by just telling a story, Jesus levels the idea that, uh, that loving someone of your own ethnicity is enough. He says, and this is why Paul would say, do good to all people, do good to everyone, do good to anyone that you lock eyes with, right? Jesus expanded the word neighbor beyond the boundaries of Judea and Galilee, beyond a single ethnicity, beyond a single bloodline. Right? And every time I read it, this parable challenges me. It just does. Right? But Jesus still isn't done. He asks the lawyer another question. Here's what he said. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of, obvious, of, of robbers? And the answer was obvious. At least it's obvious to us. In other words, he said, here's the way you could ask the question. Which of these three men love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul? And which of these, which of these three men do you think loved others the way that Jesus commanded them to, right? 
And the expert in the law, listen, think about this. He couldn't even bring himself to use the word Samaritan. He won't even speak the word. And so do you know what he says instead? The one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus just stuns the whole crowd by saying, go and do likewise. Then you'll know eternal life. Now I want to talk about this because this isn't the way we talk about knowing eternal life today, right? We don't say, hey, go and love your neighbor or love everybody, do good to all people, and that's how you're going to go to heaven. But it's very important for you to understand what was happening in this context. See, this young man grew up among a people that believed that by keeping the law, by being a good enough person, that they could gain access into heaven. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's raising the bar so high, he knows this man is not going to love a Samaritan like that ever. So what Jesus is doing is raising the bar so high that this guy will have to see his need. Because one day, Jesus is going to suffer, bleed on a cross, and Jesus knows it. And his great hope is that this man would bend his knee and surrender his heart one day to a risen Jesus who was died, buried, crucified, and raised again for a people who knew they couldn't keep the law, who knew they could never be good enough to please God. So it may sound like Jesus is saying something different about salvation than you and I do, but he is not. He's merely paving the way for what will come. In our case, what's already come. Right? This is why we talk a little differently about this. So there's no applause when Jesus says, go and do likewise. Only stunned silence because something had changed. Neighbor love all of a sudden had no ethnic boundaries, no geographic boundaries, no I'm only going to love people who agree with me boundaries. Instead, do good to all people. Now listen, what you need to hear me say is the reason I'm here today is because someone did good for me. When I was in, some of you know my story, right? When I was in middle school, my mom died. I was uh, pretty much unsupervised, especially after my freshman year in college. I got to go and do what I wanted. And in high school, there was a family who were followers of Jesus, and they saw my, my waywardness. They saw my lack of uh, supervision because I was best friends with their son. And so they took, listen, guys, I was far from a Christian at this point in my life. Okay? So it isn't like I was living the life and they said, hey, he'll be a good influence on our son. No, they knew. They knew um, they knew who I was. They knew some of what I'd done. But they still invited me into their home, and they just loved me. And uh, eventually, through their love and some hard conversations, but just a tenacity and a lavish love on this family's part, I gave my heart and I gave my life to Jesus because of the love of Jesus that I saw in them. See, they were a family that did good to all people. 
And because of their commitment to doing good to all people, I stand before you today as a follower of Jesus. And this is the way this works. It's the way it's meant to work. So how about you? Who's God calling you to do good to? Now, I want to tell you something else. This command to do good to all people is the reason that we are working so hard at, at, and we're going to renovate the facility at the bridge at 14 West Broadway, right? It's why we're not only going to love one another well and get deeper in that way, in the way that Craig was talking about, it's the reason that we're going to get elbow deep in the needs of our community, because it's by getting involved elbow deep in the needs of our community that people will uh, not only be surprised at how well we love them, but be envious of how well we love one another as they come. As skeptical people, people who are skeptical of what we believe, but envious of how well we treat one another, come to our church and just hear maybe the good news of Jesus for the very first time. See, the reason he prioritizes the family of believers is because Jesus prioritized the family of believers. And Jesus said, it's by this that all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we can't, like that lawyer, say, who is my neighbor anymore? And I want to tell you, you need to know this. Our budget in 2020 is uh, quite a bit larger than our budget was in 2019. And I want to be very clear about why. It's not so I could give or get a big raise. It's, it, listen, it's only and solely because of the property at 14 West Broadway that we're now called to steward, right? Because there's extra utilities and insurance, and you know the drill, because all of you have spaces that you have to keep warm and lighted and running. And so this is an expense we've never had before, right? We're, we're, there's an admin there that we're, we're paying for their salary. We, we, we hadn't had to do that before. So all I want you to know is that when you look at a bigger budget in 2020 and you go, holy cow, pastor might, must be eating caviar every night, right? Wow. No, that's not it at all. Listen, God is calling us to be elbow deep in the needs of our community. And that means, listen to me, that we have to be a people willing to offer up some of our time, some of our talents, and some of our treasure that people might come to know Him. That's why we have a bigger budget in 2020 than we did in 2019. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite our praise team up. And I'm going to invite us to respond to our God together today, okay? Um, now listen, here's the thing. I don't really have a horse in the race in how you respond to God, but what is so important to me, what's so important to our team, what's so important to your pastors, what's so important to your elders, is that you do respond to God in some way. And I don't know what way you may need to respond to God. Maybe you need to begin for the very first time to offer God a regular portion of your treasures in the name of love. So we have offering boxes in the front of the room, in the back of the room. So maybe you need to bring an offering today. 
Maybe you just need to be engaged in the words that you're singing. Maybe, uh, maybe you just need to be singing loud and unashamedly. Maybe you need to come to the altar and have a conversation with your Heavenly Father about where you've been sowing the most seed and how you want to change that orientation. Maybe there's somebody in this room who's going through a really hard time and you know that and you know them. Listen, it's okay during our response time to walk across the room. Sometimes the best responses to God are responses where we just walk across a room and engage somebody else in a conversation and just say, look, I know what you're going through. I know you're going through a hard time. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Or better yet, I know you're going through a hard time. Let me pray pray for you right here, right now. I, I don't know how you need to respond to God, but I know this. You need to respond to God. Some of you, you were made, you were created, you were formed, you were fashioned for this moment. And so will you just live it out? See it through. And let's be the people that would do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the household of faith. Let me pray for us. God, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have not called us to be good in, in this command. Thank you, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that the reason you haven't called us to be good is because you've already made us good. And so, God, we give you thanks and praise that we have your righteousness because of the cross. But because you've said we are good, God, you've called us to do good. And so would you help us be men and women that are just sold out, that are just reckless about doing good with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. And so, God, we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.